The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today's guest is Mark Liebenau. Mark writes about grief for the Huffington Post and on his blog, Widower's Grief, which is at widowersgrief.blogspot.com, by the way. He's the author of four books, and his essays, poems, and reviews have been published in journals like Colorado Review, Hayden's Ferry, Fifth Wednesday, DMQ Review, Open to Hope, Under the Sun, and The Good Men Project. His work has won the River Teeth Book Award, the Chautauqua Creative Nonfiction Prize, Literature Lattes Essay Award, been nominated for two Pushcart Prizes and named a notable essay by Best American Essays 2012. His account of hiking in Yosemite to deal with his wife's death, Mountains of Life, Light, excuse me, was published by the University of Nebraska Press. He's also written about the theology of fools. Five of his poems have been set to music, including a choral arrangement with soprano saxophone, and several were published in a letterpress anthology. In his spare time, he helps on the organic farm of friends. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Cheryl. So, full disclosure, I just want to acknowledge to the listeners right up front that we have several very important people in common which I didn't know when I asked you to be on the show, and it was a wonderful surprise to realize that your uh, your wife, who it, the book, who is in the background of the entire book, um, and family, and you were the members of the same church my parents were members of, and so you've really helped to bring them in for me. It's it's a lovely thing to have in my background today. Well, thank you. Yeah, when we started talking, I didn't realize that either. Yeah, it's um, it's funny the way um, those magical, um, serendipitous things happen more in life than maybe we pay attention to, but uh, it really catches my attention uh, when it does. Um, and especially considering we don't live in the same area at all. You live in Illinois and I live in California. <laughs> so that made it even yeah. more spectacular. Um, beautiful book. I really, really enjoyed the book. And, uh, you know, slightly unusual in quote-unquote grief literature in the sense that uh, nature really is is central to the book. Um, your descriptions of nature, which um, are just so very beautiful. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. 
um, it sounds as if you're a person who maybe always takes notes on what's going on uh, because you stopped several times in the book to write things down. Were you a person who did that before this loss or did that kind of bring that out in you? I've kind of always have kept notes uh, and sometimes even journals of, of what I've been doing uh, as a way of processing. The, I, I really do understand the world when I can write about it and then when it shows up on the page, then, then I know what I'm experiencing. And with the Yosemite book, I was actually kind of getting notes together for a nature guide uh, to Yosemite. And, and really, it can still be used as a guide to the hikes around and in Yosemite Valley, you know, the, the nature and the geology and the botany and all of that. But then in the midst of that, my wife died, so that she entered the the narrative and i began to go to yosemite to deal with grief and it it just seemed to dovetail nicely that as i was hiking through the wilderness uh of nature i was going through the wilderness of grief and not to mention and i think you capture this so successfully in the book nature has everything to say about loss and gain and and um, I mean, to, the trite expression "circle of life" is a real thing in nature that you're witnessing, and um, I, I can see where that just couldn't be uh, um, ignored if you were going so deeply into nature at that time. It uh, I, I went to Yosemite quite a bit, and I think maybe for the casual visitor who only goes once or twice. Everything looks the same each time you go, but if you've, I've been there over 50 times, and if you keep going back, then you start to notice the subtle changes that are going on. Uh, nature is always changing, the, uh, and death and life are going on all around you, and, and sometimes you miss that, especially on the valley floor where it seems like they have a crew that goes out every morning and cleans up all the dead bodies of the animals. Mm. But on the trails in the back country, uh, you, you see the carcasses, you see the bones, you see other things going on. Absolutely. And there's a sense of a more primal danger. I remember once I was I was camping in Yosemite and we had treed our, our supplies and everything, but a very clever bear somehow ripped open the pack uh, got it down somehow. We couldn't figure out how. Emptied everything. So we we and and we heard them. We woke up and saw the bear right there. And then in the morning we had no food or water because it had all been in the pack. And so, you know, there's that sense of wow, I could really die here. Uh, <laughs> you know, at any minute. This was before any major loss in my life, but it was a real visceral experience of the presence of that possibility. Right. And, there, have, there have been some years when I think there's one horrible year when 20 people died in Yosemite. Mm. A lot of a lot of them from making mistakes and, and wrong decisions, either falling off of Half Dome, you know, losing their footing, or wading into the emerald pool above Vernal Fall. Not to mention the bears and mountain lions and rattlesnakes. 
Which typically, uh, typically you don't hear much about, you know, animals attacking people in Yosemite. I haven't heard of that frequently. But it's it's less an idea as a, a uh, in your bones, in your nerve endings, uh, you know, kind of um, clobber over the head. Oh, my gosh, this isn't completely the safety. Of course, some people would say the city is not safe either, but I don't have visceral terrifying experiences every day in the city like that was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you see the, the, you see bears quite a bit and, you know, they're, they're scat and stuff, but when you see the footprint of a, a mountain lion on your trail, you kind of take a deep breath and wonder if you can, should continue going that direction. And that brings up a, a good point, Mark, because at several points in the book, um, you were talking about, uh, you know, some really risky thing you were feeling compelled to do, and... Um, there was this kind of debate with yourself. Should I or shouldn't I? And and almost all the time you did. And um, a couple of times you mentioned kind of your your wife who you were grieving, uh, her hesitancies, you know, her wanting you to keep yourself safe kind of thing. Do you think that um, saying yes to that those kind of risky moments had anything to do with her not saying no anymore? I, I, I don't know. I, I was curious about that when I was reading. I think or, was, did you, or did you do it before and then just feel a little bit hesitant to share? <laughs> uh, before she died, I would have been more hesitant and decided against some of the things. But in the years after, I took more risks simply because I didn't care. Um, you know, uh, all the dream, the future I had dreamed about was basically gone and, and Evelyn wasn't around anymore. And it's like, well, you know, so if I die, it doesn't matter to anyone. So why not try it? And one of the things I, I learned from the rock climbers when I was in the valley off and camped with them in camp four is all the risks they would take because what they wanted was to experience life and to find out what they were made of. And they were willing to take risks and, and fall and break bones and even the, the chance of death. Uh, but they discovered how much they liked to live. And I think in the book, although it may not have only partially got there, uh, it was discovering how much I still wanted to live by taking that the would- risk. That was very, very evident to me, actually. I, I felt as if uh, somehow through talking about nature, and sometimes directly, you were kind of asking the big questions in life that become so much more present when there's been a big loss. Like, what do I want from my life? Why do I want to live? What makes me compelled to stay on this planet? You know, all of those, um, what, what's worth taking risks for? All those kind of big existential, <laughs> as it were, questions are so present in those times. And you were also having that um, tested physically. And that crossover really captivated me. Yes, I, I definitely did want to see how much I was physically capable of. 
Uh, and I, w- I would hike from, you know, before dawn until sunset. And in the summer, that'd be like 14 hours of just continual hiking. I, I really did want to see what I was made of. Mm-hmm. I'd love to have the listeners hear the voice of the book a little bit. Could you share a bit from Mountains of Light? Sure. Sitting on the top of El Capitan, I think about coyotes and hawks killing birds, deer, and squirrels. Alongside Yosemite's astounding beauty, there is also the presence of death. The stories and mythologies of many cultures address common human struggles and the geography of grief that hides within us. Little Red Riding Hood encounters a savage wolf in the forest. Dante gets lost in the dark woods. Orpheus tries to save his wife from the underworld and overcome his grief. Persephone is kidnapped and taken underground. Alice goes down the rabbit hole in Wonderland and falls into the anarchy of Greek gods updated to British royalty behaving badly. These stories affirm the journey that starts with the trauma that death brings, like Persephone's sacrifice so that crops would grow again in spring. In the Akkadian myth, Anana had to pass through seven gates to get to the underworld and to give up something precious at each gate. At the end, she had nothing left, not even her clothing. But she found something crucial. Some people get stuck in tragedy like Ahab, who was so focused on exacting revenge for his lost leg that he lived in a world of anger and retribution. Today's hike has taken me to the top of El Capitan. Have I arrived at a new place? This really brought to mind a story that was very critical to my, I guess, assimilation of loss, which is about, uh, it's a it's a power animal um, myth from Native American ways of thinking about the swan, um, who was... Uh, originally, according to this, ugly and in search of grace, and goes to the underworld to try to find grace, but she doesn't have any guarantee. She's told, you know, you you won't have any chance if you stay here, but you only have some chance if you go, uh, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so she goes and um, makes it through and, uh, you know, comes out with, with a deep grace and a bonus of incredible beauty. And um, even her look has changed, you know, even her physical look has changed. And that idea that you can go into the unknown, uh, as many of those, those myths you're talking about, and, and, you know, deeply frightening places, as grief can be, but it's worth the journey, you know. <laughs> you, it, it may be very much worth the journey. That always spoke to me so much. Right. The, uh, I, I would always go hiking alone, which, which the park rangers tell you never to do. But I, I did would leave a, a note behind on my tent, you know, if, if I wasn't back in time or when expected. And so somebody could come and find 
my body somewhere on the trail or fallen off the edge of a cliff or eaten by a wild animal or something. But there was something about going alone into the backcountry and the solitude I loved and dealing with my fears of being in the backcountry alone. Mm. I think that really did open up some doors for me. Well, also, you were staying in the campsite that the climbers, this really got my attention, staying in the campsite where the the climbers were staying, but I never caught a whiff of maybe I should climb. You knew what you were there to do, very much, I felt, but you were so impacted by the way they were doing that, the the risks they were taking, that... that, um, that spoke to me that we, in grief, sometimes really know our own way. We don't overthink it, maybe. Right. Yeah, in grief, grief you need to grieve your own way. That's true. Uh, and what works for someone else doesn't mean it's going to work for you at all. And was it partly the fact that you were writing this book already that made that your way? Or was there something about just hiking for hours and hours and hours and hours that spoke to your experience right then? I, I think I just like to hike. My, my thinking was that, okay, the, the rock climbers are taking five days to go climb up the face of El Capitan. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I take the most direct route, I can get there in four hours. <laughs> and the view um, from the top is, is as good, uh, whether you climb or whether you, you hike up. And my thinking was, well, I could do like five hikes into different parts of, the, the, uh, of Yosemite in the time they would do, take to just do one climb. I want to see more. And you get into a rhythm on the trail where your body is, is just in sync and you're you're connected to nature, and you feel this wholeness around you. Uh, I suppose if I had continued to uh, come to the valley, I may have done some climbing. It, it does have a certain allure. I used to climb trees a lot when I was growing up and, and go up to the top and fall asleep in the branches. So mm-hmm. there is that allure to it. But it didn't... It didn't um uh, compel you to do it. You were more compelled by this hiking, yes? No, no. To climbing, you really need really strong upper body and arms and fingertips, and that would take a lot of training. Mm-hmm. And yet you got some advantage from watching the way they were interacting with that experience, I felt, and um, enjoying your conversations with them. I had this feeling... You know, I don't know if you talked with people about what you were going through when you were staying there, but there was a way that you were uh, open to each other's grief, I felt, even if you were only talking about what happens going up or down or, you know, the hike or the climb, it was present in, in what you were talking about together. Mostly I want to know, yeah, I, did, I didn't share much of my grief with them. Mostly I want to know how they were dealing with grief uh, when one of their fellow climbers would fall and be killed. Mm-hmm. Um, just, just like I was also in, in Yosemite to see how nature dealt with grief. 
And, and what I discovered is nature does grieve its losses mm. uh, for, for, and mourns for a little bit, and then it moves on. Uh, there was one case where I saw... Let's, uh, let's come back to that, Mark. Yeah, because uh, uh, we have to take a break. But I'm, but I really want to to hear more about that sentence you just said. Nature grieves its losses for a little while, but then it moves on. Um, listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America, and you can find Mark Libnow at widowersgrief.blogspot.com. Be back in a minute. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Relationship issues, anxious, parenting challenges, no more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Mark Lubinow, who writes about the loss of his wife and grief in general, and whose book, Mountains of Light, describes a year of trips to Yosemite he took following her death. And you were saying before the break, Mark, uh, that that, um, compelling sentence, um, uh, nature grieves its losses for a little while, and then it moves on. I, I think that's pretty close to what you said. And I, I would like you to say more about that. That's, um, that's a good thing to think about for me. I, I saw once along the edge of the road uh, a raccoon family. And I, I looked closely and I could see that the mother had been, I assume, hit by a car and died. And her little ones were still gathered around her. And I watched for a while. And they waited, and they looked around, and then they all went into the woods. 
And the, the reality that struck home for me is that in nature, if you need to be protective of yourself, and while they probably would want to stay there and mourn their mother, they also realized that they needed to get undercover. In, uh, and also along with the changes, uh, Happy Isles used to be a place that my wife loved. And then one year, a big rock slide came down. And it had been a shaded grove, which mm. was quiet. And it's where the, the river comes down into the canyon of the Merced Canyon. And it used to be quiet. Well, not quiet. It was, had dancing waters, and it was shaded. And when the rock slide came down and knocked down about a 1,000 trees and made it an open-air space, and it was no longer the place that my wife loved to go. So in a a span of just an afternoon, that was all gone. So nature changes quickly, but everything is is always in move in nature. That must have been quite a profound event for you personally, that particular event of um, this place she loved, um, which would probably, I would imagine, beckon you back a bit. I know I'm sometimes beckoned to places that were loved by the people I've loved who are not here. And uh, and then to have it so radically altered to the point where it's not that place anymore at all, uh, I can imagine that having a lot of impact. Yes, it used to be a place of refuge where you could, I would go through on my hikes to different places and I would just sit for a while and listen to the the dancing waters and the quiet quietness of the trees overhead, uh, and and now that was gone. Uh, but and on the same token, a new beauty has actually replaced it, and so I began to get used to that. Um, I, I'm aware this is a little bit of a of a right turn. I hope that's okay. <laughs> I, I'm I'm aware that uh, I was I was reading a book between the lines while I was reading your book, which uh, I had no information on. So I was you know it was a big question mark. But I was thinking, what was his life like at home? Um, you know because. Uh, I was likening it to an experience I had where I got involved with a spiritual community not long after my my wife died. Uh, and, and during the times I would be at the gatherings for that community, there was this um, very alive presence that I felt that was different from the rest of the time, you know, Grief was different at those times. I just felt acutely alive, you know, um, in a in a very not good bad way. And I had that feeling uh, when you were talking about being in Yosemite. But it made me wonder because I know when I was home, it was somewhat different than that, you know, uh, <laughs> to say the least. So I wonder if you could talk some about that. What, um, how you were kind of dealing with the loss of her also trying to live your everyday life 
there were a couple of things that kept me going, especially in the first six months. Uh, home, home was, you know, quiet and empty, and it just felt cold all the time. Uh, I, I think that was partially me. I just could not get warm. Food did not taste good. But what really helped were a number of friends, including some of Evelyn's friends, who I did not know very well, kept calling up and asking if they could come over and, and just, you know, listen to me talk about grief. And that astounded me. I mean, who wants to come and to listen to someone talk about grief? Mm. Especially someone you don't know well. But this mm. kept happening. It seemed like week after week. And I was wondering if someone was coordinating this somewhere. Because <laughs> it seemed so consistent. Uh, there was also an older gentleman uh, who I did not know at, well at that point who had lost his wife a year ahead of me, and he was in the congregation. And he would touch in every now and then and let me know uh, what was going to happen uh, at, at certain points. And he was right. Uh, the first thing that he said, which really calmed down my anxiety when the one-month period hit and I, I was still mired in grief, I was figuring that grief would be over in a month. Mm. And I uh, thought, uh, I, was, I wasn't grieving right. But he said, no, no, uh, it's going to take years. Uh, and that really calmed me down because he's an insightful person. And uh, so he kept, kept letting me know what was going to come up for me because it was coming up for him, working just a year ahead. Mm-hmm. And I also had two wonderful friends, Francesco and Molly, who did a lot of keeping in touch, letting me know I could call at any time, even 3 a.m. And Molly was dealing with uh, her brain cancer at the time. And so we would commiserate our our miseries together and go out for dinner and and really just support each other as as well as we could in our our stupid state. And then there's nature. And and then, as, as you kind of alluded to before, I write about stuff. So I started writing about grief. And focusing each night on grief, I, I, I started a journal, and I would not let myself go to bed without writing something about grief that day, what had happened, my thoughts about it, my feelings, just to get a sense that there was some movement going on. Grief moves so slowly that mm-hmm. I needed to have something that said, I'm making progress. Mm-hmm. That's that's wonderful and probably very uh, very connected to the poem that I'm going to have you read. Uh, it seems like a perfect moment um, because you're really talking about the comfort of people looking your grief in the face, and and it's the opposite of what a, a lot of people think is going to be comforting. You know, when you're, when you're the man who'd lost his wife said, no, 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 it's going to take years. It's okay. That wouldn't linear, in a linear logical way, seem like a comforting statement, but it is because it speaks to your reality. Uh, he was, he was seeing you and not trying to, uh, rush you through anything. Yes. Yes. Yeah, grief does not move in a straight line. It's more of a labyrinth where you, you move forward and hit dead ends and you have to, Trace your way back and then start again. Uh, so, so, yeah. 
Yeah, well, let's have you share that poem because I think um, it will be clear what you made of all these people who attended to you in grief. Okay. Uh, this is part of the poem I call Do Not Look Away, and it's in response to people or, or to our society not wanting to talk about grief and, and just kind of running from it. So this is it. When death comes, no matter how much you want to, do not look away. Do not hide from the sorrow of others. Their brokenness is your own. Do not flinch in the face of pain. Do not blink. Do not look away. Let their wounds disturb your calm exterior. Get you off your complacent posterior to go over and listen to their hearts. Listen to the silence between their words that holds the unspeakable horror. Feel their confusion and despair. Do not look away. Even if you feel inadequate for the task, even if you aren't fluent in the language of emotions, even if you are terse in your attempts to console, you can still be present and listen. You can hug them long and hard. You can look them in the eye with compassion. Do not look away. Nothing anyone can say will take away their pain or shorten sorrow's long, winding labyrinth. But you know the rocky terrain. You understand Greece's specificity. Many people do not want to know this reality. They run from death and its complicity. You feel the thrum of the great heartache, and you need to witness to this. Do not look away. If your own heart has been broken beyond belief, if you have lost someone dear to you to a heart attack, accident, stillbirth, or cancer, and it has thrown your life into the hamper, allow those who love to come and care for you. Do not look away. That last line there is so crucial, too, because you could have, out of discomfort with people you didn't know that well, uh, reaching out to you, and many people do, uh, uh, refuse to accept that. Oh, no, I'm okay, don't worry about me kind of thing. <laughs> uh, you yeah. know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, yeah, I think for, for men that's particularly true, and... Uh, at that point, I think I was more of an introvert than I am now. And it's like, oh, no, no. I keep thinking of the Monty Python uh, skit where there's the this knight in armor and and someone else chops off one of his arms mm. and he, he has a false bravado and he says, oh, no, 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 it's only a scratch. Let's keep fighting. <laughs> then his other arm gets chopped off, and then one leg, and then the other leg. He's he's basically sitting on the ground, unable to hold any sword. And he says, "Come on, you coward, let's fight." And I think that kind of the bravado that men have is that we're we're taught to be rugged individuals, and really we we flourish best when we're in community. And I think it's a sign of a healthy individual when you can ask for help when you need it. 
And had you had you already been practicing that uh, before Evelyn's death, or were you somehow in some kind of extremity so deep that you couldn't refuse? Uh, what do you what do you make of that? Because you did accept it. It sounds like. Well, I, I knew right off that grief was a, going to be a huge thing. Um, because Evelyn had been going to other people who had lost some people, and she was uh, helping them cope. And I knew being kind of an introvert and being male and not being, being good with emotions at all, either in discerning what I was feeling, let alone expressing them, that if any, I decided that if anyone called saying they wanted to come over and listen or invite me over for tea or dinner or whatever, I was going to say yes, even if I did not feel like going. I, I just, it just felt like it was going to be a saving thing. This is what I would have shared with Evelyn, you know, all this grief, and she would have loved to have experienced that, all the, the trauma and the yelling and the ranting and the despair, but she wasn't here. Mm. And I needed, and I knew I needed someone to talk to. And I, I think in grief that really is, the, the healing therapy is talking and having someone listen because we work our way through what is bothering us and, and what has our lives tied up in a knot. And also, uh, having someone reflect that it's okay that you feel the way you feel. Um, I was... Um, leading a group last night for women with cancer. I do that every week. And it was a particularly poignant night. Lots of painful things happening for people. And people were sharing very deeply about it. And the last few minutes, it was people saying, I love this group, you know. Um, <laughs> I love being here. I can't wait for next week, you know. And it wouldn't be necessarily intuitive if you didn't, uh, if we didn't know what you're talking about, that there's uh, such a deep solace in people just hearing the extremity of your of your difficulty and how you're trying to cope with it and noticing that you're being valiant in the ways you are and you're crumbling in the ways you are. I think that's very powerful. Definitely. The, uh, the last couple of years, my, my wife died in 2001, so I've been writing about this for some time, and it's only been in the last couple of years that I've been getting in touch with all the emotions that are involved, and a lot of it has come out because of the refuge and grief community. Uh, they, they have a, my introduction to it was a 30-day writing course where every day they send out a prompt uh, that you write about, and then you share it with the other members on the group, and this is all online. And mm. all of the emotions and support and the sharing that goes on, and we know we've all experienced the grief, so we're, we're just completely open, just letting everything fly. And that kind of acceptance and compassion is just, oh, just such an amazing thing. Absolutely. And, and I think maybe particularly, I mean, I don't think... Any of us are that good, women or men, in this culture. We don't necessarily get training in how to identify our feelings and how to share them. But 
I think that men in particular are, are kind of told to shut down in that way. Um, so it must be so um, like a balm to, ha- to find other, other men who want to communicate about that, um, having had an experience that took you to that depth and, and kind of made you figure it out. Yes. Yeah, very amazingly helpful. It's time for our second break already. Um, listeners, you can go find us during this break. I'm at weatheringgrief.com or on the voicemail Good Grief page. And to find Mark Liebenau, you can go to widowersgrief.blogspot.com. Back after the break. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that'll help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm here with Mark Liebenau, and we've been talking about grief in general, the loss of his wife, and how that led him to writing about grief, and in particular, how uh, his relationship to nature integrated uh, with his own grief process. And we were talking a little bit about, um, you know, partly just about the expression of grief and being heard in grief and how powerful that is and the ways in which you've you've done that. And obviously, um, that's a big part of what you do. You're writing daily and weekly um, about grief and how people, how people handle it. Um, do you think that, you know, I, I lose perspective on whether culture is changing in this regard, but it seems to me like because there's such availability of different experiences, uh, you know, in Facebook and all kinds of other social media and everything, that there is starting to be maybe more room for people to have their feelings with each other. And, uh, you know, when people 
lose somebody and they put it immediately out publicly. That seems very different to me. Does it seem to you? Very much so. When I started in, in 2001, there really wasn't much of anything that I found on the Internet or, or on the web, actually, to help. Uh, there's, there's a lot more now, that's true. But still, there's not much written by men uh, at all. I don't quite know why that is. But I, I've seen some things where, uh, like Francis Weller's book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, is bringing in the context and communal aspects of, of grief, the, the cultural rights and traditions, uh, which puts grief more in a context that you can understand and, and how communities react to grief and support its members. You know, he was on the show, too, and, and listeners, go listen to that, that interview. Um, I, I found his book very profound in the sense that I don't usually resonate, actually, with um, description books about grief, but that was such a heartful book, so deep and so um, poetic that it just really um, connected for me. It's a beautiful book, the book you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, it does give kind of a framework for the different ways in which we grieve, which I notice all the time, you know, um, grief for worldly um, difficulties. Boy, there's so much of that. And, and grief for what never was, you know, um, it just filled out some sense of um, what things open up that place for us. Right, and whatever place it does open up, we need to acknowledge it and, and deal with it, or, or it will just start to fester and, and create little holes in our lives. You know, I was curious about this, this aspect on a gender level. Um, when, when I was in the biggest, you know, let's say the first year after my wife died, and granted, much different experience because she was sick for a very, very long time. I was thinking constantly about what that would be like for me, you know, that whole very long time, etc. But um, I noticed that I um, wanted to be quiet a lot, uh, you know, sit still a lot, um, l- play or listen to music a lot, stay indoors a lot. Um, and obviously you had a very different experience of that of action and activity. And um, I think we were dealing with some of the same underlying, um, for want of a better word, lessons of grief or things that are brought up by grief, but in a really different way. And I wondered if you think there's any um, aspect of gender in that. Neil Chetlick, in his book, Father Loss, talks about the, the different ways uh, men deal the death of their fathers. And one of the prevalent ways was men need to, to do something, to build something, uh, like, like uh, go to their father's uh, workroom and, and build a bench and put it outside where their father liked to sit. So I think there is something where, where men and boys are taught to do things when they're growing up. And, and that's just part of, of, of their personality, or at least how, how we're taught. And then they begin to share in little dribs and drabs. And the way to help 
helpman, I think, is just to keep offering openings, saying, when you're ready to talk, uh, I'm here. You know, just reminding them of that so that when they're ready, they can share whatever it is they want to share and, and, and then accept it. Well, there's also a, uh, a very strong message there. You will be ready to talk at some point, and I will be here. You know, when huh. you're ready to talk, not if you want to talk, uh, which, <laughs> which, you know, which kind of seeds the experience a little bit. Oh, this person, you, uh, Mark, who's grieved, believes that there will come a moment where I'm going to want to talk about this. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of the power of that, but it's it's a very powerful um, way to invite that talk. Yeah, it's yeah. it's important not to ignore grief because I um, I think well I'm going to generalize here. I think a lot of men figure that they can just keep on working and eventually it will fade away. Uh, but grief isn't going to go away. Uh, you can't solve it like a problem and think your way through. And it's not like an illness that will heal on its own. You, you've got to talk about it sometime, whether it's now, next week, or 20 years down the road. It's still going to be there until you deal with it. Hmm. Did you know when you were going back to Yosemite time after time that there was a, that, you know, I had a sense of process in the book uh, underlying that, the experience at the beginning of the book was different from where you ended up and that the the things you were doing, the hikes and, you know, the, the observations were a grief story, uh, not just at the moments you were specifically talking about that. And I wondered if you were aware of that right at the time or it, it kind of came clearer as you went on because... I remember at the beginning, I had made a deal with myself knowing that death was coming, that I just got to have what I wanted and feel the way I felt, you know, mm-hmm. for, for that first year at least. Um, I've made it a lifestyle now, but <laughs> at the time, <laughs> it was, you know, just I get to be important to myself during that time, you know. But I was still, that means you don't know what's going on a lot of the time, you know. I, I was kind of... Yeah, I just wasn't disturbed by it because I decided to let myself be in that place where I didn't know anything and didn't have to make anything, you know, um, I didn't have to resolve anything. But there was still an arc to it that underneath there was something unfolding. And I felt that in your book. I don't think it was intentional uh, in the beginning when I was going to Yosemite after Evelyn died. It was more of just to get away from the gauntness of grief at home uh, and and escape, basically. And then I began to pay attention, or I began to think, you know, okay, if life and death are going on around me, how is is nature dealing with this? How does it handle its losses? And and I just was open to things. And I think as, as I progressed through grief, I began to find different answers in nature. You know, for those of us who experience a very significant loss and then it sort of affects what we do in the world, you write about grief, I talk about grief and, you know, do a lot of things that are, that's at the center of certainly my work life and it definitely impacts 
everything in my personal life, too, to have had that experience. Um, there's some sense it keeps evolving. Um, my wife died in 1995. Your wife in 2001. I'm sure we're both in really, really different places than we were early, middle, and now here's where we are now. And you're writing about the, that. In particular, I'm I'm thinking about this piece of writing from Grief Walkers that sort of seems to be what you conclude in the end for the moment. You may conclude more different things later, but um, kind of what we make of it after a long time of assimilating what loss means. Would you read that for us? Sure. This is uh, part of my essay that was published in The Manifestation and was inspired by Naomi Shihab Nye's amazing poem, Kindness. There's a deep need for kindness in the world, especially for those who are grieving. I'm speaking of what comes from the heart, of love unbidden that demands nothing of the one it is offered to, love that seeks only to help the one who stands in front of me. It asks and then listens when the hard stuff spills out. Until my own beloved died, I did not understand the significance of joy returning to your smile after the death of someone you loved with all your heart and soul. I did not appreciate the fierce spirit within you that would not give in to death, but fought until you had scraped your life back together. One of the deepest things in life is sorrow, Naomi Shihab Nye said. The other deepest thing, she said, is kindness. Kindness learned from grief, because there is so much sorrow and anger and hatred every day. If I can offer you kindness, and if I am open to your care for me, then we are free to accept what we need from what is being offered. We are free to give ourselves to the moment, to laugh and sing and dance, or sit quietly together under a tree. Simply knowing that kindness exists between us and that if one of us has a need we can ask and the other will respond, then this day and every day after this will live in kindness. One day's blessing becomes the next. I imagine that you've seen, um, because I know you're on fa- on social media, the um, it's a picture of the Dalai Lama and it's a quote, and it says, um, my religion is kindness. Um, and of course, he's had un- unimaginable losses in in his life. And so that makes sense to me that he would arrive at that place as well that you're talking about. I think with all the compassion that I received from other people when I was actively going through grief, it it just brought home how important that is that we treat each other with kindness. Yeah, I think a lot when I'm uh, when people are misbehaving in traffic or something. <laughs> what what are they going through? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, some people think, why did they do that? <laughs> <laughs> but but I tend to think, what are they going through? 
Um, yeah, there, there's so much loss and tragedy going on every day that, yeah, who knows what they're going through. Who knows? I, I once calculated off of some statistics I read that half the people we encounter are in the early stages of grief. Wow. Uh, you know, isn't that astounding? It is. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to leave it there for today, Mark. It's been a delight to talk to you and, and hear more of, of what you're doing with your own grief work. And uh, I hope we'll keep in touch. I've enjoyed this. Thank you for inviting me on your show. Absolutely. And listeners, you can go to widowersgrief.blogspot.com to find more of Mark's work. He writes a, a column every Wednesday that's quite wonderful. Uh, so go and read more. Next week, I'll welcome Purvi Shaw. When Purvi's son was diagnosed with leukemia at three years old, she noticed that the times when they were making art together brought comfort and joy to both of them as nothing else did. So along with two others, she created the Kids and Art Foundation, which brings the arts to families facing can- cancer. Since her son died at age nine, the mission of the foundation has, has expanded to offer the arts as a healing mode for coping with grief as well. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.